I'm Ken Sandberg. And I'm Heather Michelle Lawler. Welcome to Campfire Classics, where we try to read those books that look really good on your shelf. It's raining, it's pouring, I'm drinking wine and pouring. <laughs> ah! Yeah, and then there was that. <laughs> What I, what I meant was it's 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 April, so spring is springing, and uh, is so April. the world yeah. is Twitterpated. So they're not like whoring, but it rhymed. So like, you know, like Twitterpated for yeah. Bambi. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It yeah. is my favorite word for horny that Disney created. So what you're telling our listeners is that it's raining and pouring outside, which is why you're drinking while you're hoary me. <laughs> Something like that. I mean, the world. I'm drinking wine, and, uh, you know, it's spring, so spring is springing, if you know what I mean. Spring, spring, sprung. I I think we all know what you mean, and I think you're getting a little personal. (laughs) Well, that's what I do. (laughs) I'm good at that, y'all. But yeah, no, that literally just came out of my mouth, and Ken's face was like, okay, that's where this episode's going. Wow. (laughs) All right. So, uh, so that was exciting. So, welcome to Campfire Classics. Welcome to Campfire Classics. Hey, listener, um, if you're a regular listener, you know that I don't like to be dramatic. Um, (laughs) but I think it's important that you know, I think I'm dying. I know. He's, (laughs) Ken's in a rough way today. I I would imagine listeners of a certain age will understand this and listeners under a certain age simply won't. But the way it (laughs) happened was this. I uh, woke up this morning, felt pretty good, went downstairs, made a cup of coffee, got a couple of sips in. I turned on the uh, the next episode of The Broad Swords, the actual play Dungeons & Dragons podcast that I'm currently working my way through binging. Uh, put it's some called toast- Broad Swords because they do D&D and it's women. Broad Swords. It's, <laughs> it's very clever. I, I appreciate it. <laughs> uh, but no, so I, I put my toast in the toaster, came out. And while I was spreading peanut butter on the toast, I threw out my back. Yep. I came downstairs because Ken always wakes up before me. I came downstairs. He was on the like big chair. And I was like, how you doing, baby? Good morning. And he's like, uh. I was like, oh, no, he is not. He's not there today. Um, so anyway, I will I will try to uh, to hit the mute button before I scream out in pain. <laughs> Uh, um, at any point during should, the podcast, I think you include it. but uh, but if if I if I miss that cough button, you know you'll you'll know that's what's going on. I think you should include it, much like uh, like in Forty Year Old Virgin when he gets waxed and and when you yelp, just yell out like a celebrity choice, <laughs> like Ah oh, Taylor Swift. <laughs> she I gives me think, pain. So. I don't think she would be my go-to. <laughs> Who would be your go-to to scream out in pain? Because he screams out Kelly Clarkson, which I think is so random. I don't know. I guess, like, it would have to take me by surprise, and yeah. I'd just have to be in it the moment. It just comes out. Like, the pain yeah. just makes you scream a name. But I just, like, I'm not... Taylor Swift, you seem lovely. This is not a criticism of you in any way, either artistically or personally. I don't care enough about Taylor Swift for her to be the go-to celebrity if I were going to scream something out. Like, I don't have positive or negative connotations with her. I am not her target demographic, so her music, although I recognize some of the songs, doesn't really do anything for me, either good or bad. Like, I don't don't have strong enough feelings for her to be someone that, like... 
Yeah, that's that's true. Does he scream out Kelly Clarkson because he likes her, like, and he she's on his brain, and that's just what comes out, um, or is it because he hates her and that's what's on his brain? But either way, he has to have strong feelings because it's the first thing that comes out of his yeah. mouth. Yeah, or at least, or or at least like her name is prevalent enough in his life that that's yeah. what. Yeah, that's what comes out, and that like so many of the so like would be like David Tennant or like Doctor Who or something. yeah, probably <laughs> something along those lines. Yeah. Um, what would mine? Be? Mine would be like, uh, I'm trying to think of like, uh, someone I just love, uh, Paul Rudd. <laughs> Paul Rudd. Oh, he's in Forty Year Old Virgin, so works out well. <laughs> um, good times, great oldies. That's what we are. Um, that's what we are. We're great oldies. <laughs> I mean, they do show friends on Nick at Night now, so we are oldies. <sighs> Uh-oh. He's going to just give up. He's like, nope. I'm that's done. it. I'm throwing in the towel. I quit. No more. Uh, we made it 40 something episodes, and now this I'm is just. 43, and <laughs> that's, that's, all, <laughs> that's all she wrote, y'all. Um, no. I'll muscle through. I believe in you. Somehow. Um, so it's been a, I mean, it's been a pretty chill week other than you breaking yourself and, you know, <laughs> but we were listed on a new, uh, like top 100 podcast to discover list, Ooh. which I want to shout out to the website. Yeah, it's, uh, please. Podboard100.com. So what you can do there is you can see the top 100 podcasts in America, the top 100 in Australia, but then they also have a top 100, um, podcasts like independent podcasts to discover. So like newer podcasts um, that they have put up and we're like number 22 on the, like if you're just looking, I don't think they're ranked necessarily, but like down the list. I wonder if countries like um, the Vatican, which is its own country, (laughs) has a top 100 podcast. I'm going to guess all of those are like religion based and like. Or do you think, do you think that like, so there's the tiny country, the country of Andorra, which is in yeah. the mountains in between France and Spain. Yeah. And it was a country that I briefly became obsessed with That's in middle school. That's where that wine school. was from that I just, we just got. Oh, yeah? Andorra. Great. Um, it's a country that I became obsessed with um, briefly during uh, middle school when I realized that there was a country in the mountains between France and Spain. Yeah. <laughs> and I wonder, like, do they do they have enough podcasts coming out of Andorra to have a top 100 list. I wonder, like, how many people live there? Yeah. Are there even 100 people in that, air, like, in the Vatican there are? But... Do you think we could market ourselves to become the number one podcast in Andorra? We might make Andorra. I don't, I think the amount of fucks that we throw um, are going to exclude us from the Vatican, though. <laughs> Dear listener, if you have connections to anyone in Andorra or, or the to the Pope, <laughs> could you please Put an episode of Campfire Classics in their ears. I'd really just appreciate hearing how. I would love to hear the Pope listen to like the minister's black veil, the one we did last week. Like that would what? actually be really interesting. Why the fuck is he wearing this veil on his face? That would actually be really interesting. I would love to hear the the interpretation that a um, established religious figure yeah gives to would, that story. Yeah, because I mean. They don't necessarily swear in public, but like, you know, they fucking swear. I'm just, I'm sorry. (laughs) Even people, if you don't, everyone has some sort of exclamation 
Yeah. And just because it's not one of the socially accepted curse words, like if you say shoot instead of shit, we all know it means the same yeah. thing. We know what you're saying. It's like when when you're you're like, ah, feck or frick or like darn it. Like we know what you're saying. You're just editing yourself, which is why people that swear are much more free. <laughs> uh, well, and it's like the you've got um Shows like Battlestar Galactica or um, Farscape where they sub in other words for what curse words have evolved into. I want to point so out got, I have never seen either of those shows, so I don't even know what you're talking about. You've got uh, in Farscape, they use the, the curse word frell all the time. Okay. What okay. the frell is that? And it seems to... It, it it seems to to sub in for both hell and fuck. It's like the good place where they can, um, they're not allowed to swear, so they just say fork. And what like, the fork? This is bullshit. Bullshit. It's really funny. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's like heaven's way of swearing. Yeah, or the other place. We don't. They're not necessarily in heaven. <laughs> so, do we have any promos this week? Damn right we do. Hell yeah! Hell yeah! Whose good work are we sharing this time? Uh, Today, we will be featuring uh, the wonderful work of Dr. Catherine, as we call her on Twitter. Um, (laughs) It's Catherine, and uh, her podcast is A Few Bad Apples, so here it is. Fact. Over 700 people have been killed by the hands of the police just this year alone. I'm Catherine Sheffield, host of the weekly podcast, A Few Bad Apples. Each week, I unravel true stories of victims whose lives have been affected by bad apple officers of the law. I bring this relevant conversation into the public spotlight because it's a way to provoke change and reform. Not all officers are bad, and in fact, I highlight a positive story at the end of every episode to balance the spectrum. A Few Bad Apples is available wherever you get your podcasts. All right. Very, uh, very topical right now, given the uh, George Floyd trial that's going on and very topical in general. I'm literally wearing a fuck racism shirt on like <laughs> as we record, which I will post on the website. It's like the best T-shirt. But uh, yeah, very, very topical in the in the world right now. Um and she does a great job. She's been going for a while, and uh, she's super supportive of us on Twitter, and uh, we wanted to support her podcast. So uh, if you're looking for something, it's it's like, it's like kind of like a true crime podcast, but it's really more of, it's a very like niche look at specifically the police force. Police, so, it, it looks at police corruption yeah. stories by the yeah. sound of it, yeah. Um, so um. be sure to go check out Catherine. She's fantastic, and... Yeah, that's something that bothered me about um, when people were you were seeing a lot of the argument of like, oh, it's only a few bad apples. It's only a few bad apples. It's only a few bad. A- Police aren't bad. It's only a few bad apples. I'm like, yeah, you're right. But you know what the saying is, right? One bad a few apple. bad apples spoils the bunch. bunch. And that's the issue. And like um, she she does highlight the good co- because we all know good cops. I mean, I have friends who are in the police force. Um and people of all backgrounds, religions, colors, like in the police force. And yes, yeah. of course, of course, not everybody is a bad apple. But yes, if you if there's one bad person in like a precinct, that's going to spread yeah. so fast. The, the way you keep a bad apple from spoiling the bunch of apples is you get, get rid of the out. bad apple. But yeah, go. Uh, go check out Catherine. She's fantastic. So I give two wonderful uh, thumbs up to her. 
<laughs> and this fuck racism shirt that I got um, in San Diego that I love. I would give two thumbs up to her, but it hurts too much to move my arm that way. <laughs> He's smiling, which is as much as much joy as he can feel right now. <laughs> so I, uh, other than that, I mean, we've we've uh, again, it's been kind of a chillax week. Um, Nothing super crazy dramatic has happened other than you breaking yourself. And Lion has been in a really weird mood. <laughs> she's up here again eating. Yeah. Um, so if you hear her meowing during this episode, it's because she's a freak of nature and we love her. Um, but yeah, go check out uh, our podcast stuff. Why am I telling you? You're already listening. You're already listening. Um, thank you, listener. Be- thank Tell you. someone else to come listen yes. to us. And to that end, how about we, we do what we do? What do we do? I don't really know. I think we drink wine and complain about things. Um, pretty much. I mean, that's like we should like change the tagline. It's where like, we try to read those books that look really good on your shelf after we drink wine and complain about things. <laughs> and speak about Twitter patient and and whoring and whatnot. Yeah. Yes. So welcome. Oh, and I'm reading this week. So You're reading this I don't week. Know what's gonna which happen. means I get to uh, select the story. And I get to do a little bit of uh, research and report some fun facts beforehand so that you get a little bit of education, a little bit of culture, and then we're also going to make fun of the little bit of culture that you get. Yeah, see, you will learn things here, but you'll learn them while you're laughing at ridiculousness. You will learn things, but not very many, and they won't be good. (laughs) They won't be great. So, this week, Washington Irving... Is an American writer. Wait, uh, uh, Sleepy Hollow. Yes. Yeah! That's what I was going to get to. Is an American writer best known today for his short stories Rip Van Winkle and The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. <laughs> he also wrote essays of both humorous and insightful nature, histories, and biographies. Aside from being one of the best-loved English-language authors of his time, managing to earn respect even from his snooty and often American-hating British contemporaries, Irving served <laughs> as American ambassador to Spain in the 1840s. Ooh, maybe he hung out in Andorra. He might have. <laughs> Uh, So today's info is coming to you from AmericanLiterature.com, Biography.com, Wikipedia, and the Washington Irving little bio blurbs on Project Gutenberg and Public Domain Poetry.com. Project Gutenberg is the shit. Yeah. (laughs) Shout out to them just for like. Oh, they're they're doing the the Lord's work. They really are. Like they're the Wikipedia of like free public domain literature. It's great. Yeah. Uh, So, back to the beginning of Washington Irving, and I'm going to move quick because I want to get to the story, he said with optimistic naivety. I'll try not to interrupt you every (laughs) 10 seconds. Uh, So, Irving was born in Manhattan, New York. Yay! Back in 1783. In fact, he was born the same week that news reached New York that the British had agreed to a ceasefire and the American Revolution was over. What's more, he was named after General Washington, Washington Irving, and he got to meet him when he was six years old in 1789 after Washington had been inaugurated, the first president of the United States, and moved to the then capital, New York. This is some Hamilton bullshit. (laughs) I'm so happy. (laughs) Oh, just wait. There is more. 
but we have to skip, get through a couple of years first. Okay. The 1798 yellow fever outbreak in Manhattan forced his family out into upstate New York, where he first learned of this little town (laughs) called Sleepy Hollow. Uh And he started exploring the Catskill Mountains, which would become the setting of many future stories, including Rip Van Winkle. Irving began writing letters to the New York Morning Chronicle in 1802 when he was 19 using the pseudonym Jonathan Old Style. <laughs> old Style. Isn't that a beer? Isn't that a really shitty old beer? Style old beer? Style beer? I don't know. Jonathan uh, Old Style. It sounds like a beer that I wouldn't order. It sounds like the ones you get in a 30-pack to play Flippy Cup <laughs> and, uh, and uh, Beer Pong. Uh, pseudonyms kind of became one of his defining characteristics as a writer. He was always writing under false names. Did it all the time. I wonder why. He was even even his famous ones, um, Rip Van Winkle and, and Sleepy Hollow, were both written under under a pseudonym. Was he like of wealthy stature Not and particularly. like writing sketchy? Or no, he, like, his huh, parents, he was like merchant class. So they had money, but they weren't loaded. They weren't nobility or anything. That's interesting. So these letters that he was writing to the New York Morning Chronicle, uh, brought him some of his first real attention. Aaron Burr, yes, that Aaron Burr, though he hasn't killed Lin-Manuel Miranda yet, <laughs> was a co-publisher of The Chronicle. Oh. And he was so impressed with Irving's writings that he sent clippings to his daughter, Theodosia. Theodosia! He is not <laughs> throwing away his shot. Theodosia writes me a letter every day. <laughs> oh my God, I'm such a freaking musical. Are, are we going to have the honor of witnessing the first ever production of your one woman version of Hamilton? Nobody ever wants to or needs to see that trash. Trust me. <laughs> I know my lane, and that ain't it. <laughs> so after barely passing the bar exam, his words. Oh. Uh, He got together with a group of friends and started a literary magazine called Selma Gundy, which was essentially the predecessor of Mad Magazine. Oh, my God. It was was a comedy and satire satire. magazine. All right. Nice. Um, In fact, while writing for this uh, magazine, Washington Irving gave New York its nickname Gotham, which is apparently an Anglo-Saxon word meaning goat's town. Weird, and then that's what that's where Batman and that's that's where yeah that's Gotham. I mean Gotham is Is the the New York City of the DC universe. Wow, why Goat's Town? I don't know. I didn't do that research. I should have. (laughs) Well, we'll do that in the in a future episode. Yeah, we'll do that later. If you know why Goat's Town, you email us. But yeah, so he he gave New York the nickname Gotham. All right. While writing for a satire magazine. Amazing. (laughs) Then he started delving into his multi-layered pen names. This is where his pen name thing gets kind of weird. He created the character of Diedrich Knickerbocker, a Dutch historian who had gone missing from his hotel. In fact, before the first, like, release of any of Diedrich Knickerbocker's writings, Irving set up this elaborate publicity stunt basically where he discovered a note 
from the manager of the hotel saying that if Knickerbocker didn't come back to pay his bill, he was going to release the manuscript he found in his room. Y'all, that is some Blair Witch Project <laughs> shit right there. It's like setting up this falsified like account so you get more people into it. That's amazing. Irving's first major like writing success in book form was this discovered manuscript which he titled A History of New York from the Beginning of the World to the End of the Dutch Dynasty by Diedrich Knickerbocker. Could have come up with a like tighter title, Catch but you know, title. you know, you gotta do what you gotta do. It's worth noting that the New York basketball team is the Knicks, short <gasps> for Knickerbockers. Knickerbockers. Oh, hell no. <laughs> Dude, Washington Irvine like is New York City. Is there, like there should be, there should be more shit there named after him. <laughs> Many of the short stories written under the pseudonym Jeffrey Crayon, which was one of his common pseudonyms. Like crayon? Like crayons? That's how it's spelled. Yeah. Like, okay. Like, like a crayon. Crayola crayon. Yeah. Okay. Um, many of the short stories written under that pseudonym were written under the the guise of having been learned through this mythical historian, Diedrich Knickerbocker. So oh he would invent this story, figure out how Diedrich Knickerbocker reported it, and then... Jeffrey Crayon would write the story. Are we 100% <laughs> positive that he didn't have like multiple personality disorder? I'm, I'm like not that. 100% positive. I mean, that was long before like anything like that was known, like as other than what is up with that person. Yep. But uh, it just sounds like he has like these personalities that or like these characters he has created or or he's like the originator of SNL as well and he just really gets into his characters. Yeah. But no, he <laughs> so he goes through all of these like meta layer after meta layer of writing. Yeah, that's that's <laughs> I want to talk to like an Irving like scholar and be like, "What was that all about?" That's um, interesting. But so now we're coming up on today's story. Okay. Writing as his character of the gentleman Jeffrey Crayon, Irving liked to tell stories that he quote, heard from a friend or read in a manuscript <laughs> or, or learned from night. a stranger in a bar, yeah. that sort of thing. So in the book Tales of a Traveler, published in 1824, Cran slash Irving claims that the first section, which he called Strange Stories by a Nervous Gentleman, <laughs> was collected at a dinner party. Okay. There's a short story in the very beginning of this section, which sort of sets the scene where Jeffrey Cran shows up to the dinner. Um, he introduced the guests. And then the nervous gentleman says, oh, something you just said reminds me of a story. He says, it is a story that I once heard my uncle tell when I was a boy, but whether as having happened to himself or to another, I cannot recollect. But no matter, it's very likely it happened to himself, for he was a man very apt to meet with strange adventures. I've heard him tell of others much more singular. At any rate, we will suppose it happened to him. And then he launches into the story of my uncle, which you will now read. The story of my uncle. All right. Might be the adventure of my uncle. I might have written it down wrong. I like the adventure of my uncle. Um, but then that first section ends up being the course of that dinner party and all of the stories that he hears. Oh, my God. Okay. I'm excited. So that's this what you're going to read. Ridiculous. All, right. all right. So let's start the fire. The Adventure of My Uncle. Adventure, I did write it down wrong. Damn. <laughs> you 
Adventure of My Uncle by Washington Irvine and one of his many, many colorful personalities. Or maybe more than one. Yeah. Many years since, a long time before the French Revolution, my uncle had passed several months at Paris. The English and French were on better terms in those days. <laughs> were they ever in? Were they? I was like, I was like, terms. I don't think they like each other now. I suppose um, it's all on a sliding scale. Uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> they were friendly they were compared to what they are now. When they were at war and cutting people's heads off and shit. Okay. They only spit on each other instead of actively trying to murder yeah, each other. Yeah, there's a slight difference. Do you hear the people sing? Anyway. The English and French were on better terms in those days than at present and mingled cordially together in society. The English went abroad to spend money then and the French were always ready to help them. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, welcome to our country. Please stimulate our economy. Thank you very much. We'll deal with you. We'll just talk about you behind your back. We know you only speak English anyway. We can say whatever we want. We'll talk about you in front of your face. There it is. Uh, They go abroad to save money at present, and that they can do without French assistance. Perhaps the traveling English were fewer and choicer then than at present. Then the whole nation had broke loose and inundated the continent. There were fewer English people traveling Traveling. compared to now when they've gone over and inundated the continent with fucking English tourists. Here's some fish and chips. In their, I mean, I, I know that it's the American stereotype, but yeah. in, in their white sneakers and fanny packs. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, what was the equivalent to white sneakers and fanny packs in the 1800s? <laughs> Comfort slippers <laughs> worn in public instead of like real shoes. Yeah. And I don't know, a, a hobo pack? <laughs> What's a hobo pack? You know, the like oh, the like sack on a, on, a, on a stick? I don't think rich people carry those around. Well, I wouldn't think rich people would go around in a fanny pack either. I don't know. They're pretty trendy right now. (laughs) Not okay. The 90s are back. They weren't okay in the 90s either. (laughs) Perhaps the traveling English were fewer and choicer then than at present. Then the whole nation had broke loose and inundated the continent. At any rate... They circulated more readily and currently in foreign society, and my uncle, during his residence in Paris, made many very intimate acquaintances among the French noblesse. Oh, he had some adventures in France. He's drinking and Twitter-pated. Sometime afterwards, he was making a journey in the wintertime in that part of Normandy called the Pas-de-Cas. When, as evening was closing in, he perceived the turrets of an ancient chateau rising out of the trees. As See, it- nothing bad ever happens when you stumble upon an ancient chateau in the woods. Hello, Beauty and the Beast. <laughs> like, come on, people. Hello, half of the stories, stories we've, we've read, read on this podcast. <laughs> Sometime afterwards, he was making a journey in the wintertime in that part of Normandy called the Pas de Chat. When, as evening was closing in, he perceived the turrets of an ancient chateau rising out of the trees of its walled park, each turret with its high conchal roof of gray slate, like a candle with an extinguisher on it. (laughs) To whom does this chateau belong, friend? cried my uncle to a meager but fiery postulin. Postulin? Like, like, person? 
Yo, buddy walking by? I assume it's a person. Otherwise, him yelling at it would be really fucking well, weird. Washington Irvine had lots of personalities. I don't know what this guy is talking to or who this guy is talking to. Postion, postion. Oh, it's French. A person who rides the leading left-hand horse of a team or pair drawing a coach or carriage, especially when there is no coachman. Great, cool. All right, postion. 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 It's the coachman. Uh, My uncle to a meager but fiery postion, who with tremendous jackboots and cocked hat was floundering on before him. I was going to make a joke about the jackboots, and then it said cock hat. Then it said cock hat. (laughs) (laughs) So he's jacking his boots and cocking his hat. All right. Now we know what this guy is. He is definitely fiery. Here come the adventures. To Monsieur the Marquis de, said the postillon, touching his hat, touching his cock hat. (laughs) (laughs) The postillon said, touching his cock. (laughs) To Monsieur the Marquis de, said the postillon, stroking his cock, partly out of respect for my uncle and part. <laughs> okay, that doesn't work. Wow. No, that works. <laughs> that plays. Touching his hat, partly out of respect to my uncle and partly out of the reverence to the noble name pronounced. My uncle recollected the Marquis for a particular friend in Paris who had often expressed a wish to see him at his paternal chateau. My uncle was an old traveler, one that knew how to turn things to account. He revolved for a few moments in his mind how agreeable it would be to to be his friend, the Marquis, to be surprised in this sociable way by a pop visit, and how much more agreeable to himself to get in a snug quarters in the chateau and have a relish of the Marquis's well-known kitchen and smack of his superior champagne and burgundy rather than take up with the miserable lodgment and miserable fare of the country inn. I did not mean to read that like a porn, but like (laughs) the way it was written, it was like, Oh, the snug quarters and the relish of his kitchen and smack his wine. <laughs> See, he is. He's wine and horn. Yep. Drinking and a horn. <laughs> Drinking and a horn. In a few minutes, therefore, the meager postillon was cracking his whip like the very devil. <laughs> or like a true Frenchman up the long straight avenue that led to the chateau. I have no doubt all seen French chateaus as everybody travels in France nowadays. <laughs> You've all seen French uh, chateaus, right? France is uh, so passé. Everyone's uh, going there so these days. So boring. Google French chateau if you don't know. <laughs> you really need to see Transylvania. Oh, yes. This was one of the oldest, standing naked and alone in the midst of a desert of gravel walks and cold stone terraces with a cold-looking formal garden cut into angles and rhombuses and the cold leafless park divided geometrically by straight alleys and two or three noseless cold-looking statues without any clothing and fountains spouting cold water enough to make one's teeth chatter 
At least such was the feeling they imparted on the wintry day of my uncle's visit. Though, in hot summer weather, I'll warrant there was glare enough to scorch one's eye out. <laughs> so basically... Well, that's a negative way to look at everything. Well, they're English, right? <laughs> I, I lived in England for six years. They're lovely people. I'm not offending anyone in England right now. The Marquis did the honors of his house with the urbanit, ur, urban, urbanity. Urbanity? What's that? Noun. Suavity, courteousness, and refinement of manner. Oh, yes. Well, that's exactly how I wanted to read it, but I didn't know what the word was. Urbanity. Urbanity. The Marquis did the honors of his house with the urbanity of his country. In fact, he was proud of his old family chateau, for part of it was extremely old. There was a tower and chapel that had been built almost before the memory of man, but the rest was more modern, the castle having been demolished during the wars of the League. What war was that? So when I type in War of the League, Mm -hmm. the first thing that pops up is the War of the League of Cambrai. Sometimes known as the War of the Holy League and several other names, was a major conflict in the Italian Wars of 1494 to 1559. The main participants of the war fought from 1508 to 1516 were France, the Papal States, and the Republic of Venice. The Papal States as in like... The Holy Holy Roman Empire. Okay. All right. War of the League. The Marquis dwelt upon this event with great satisfaction, and deemed really to entertain a grateful feeling towards Henry IV, for having thought his paternal mansion worth battering down. He had many stories to tell of the prowess of his ancestors, and several skullcaps, helmets, and crossbows to show, and divers' huge boots and buff jerkins that had been worn by the leaguers. Above all, there was a two-handed sword, which he could hardly wield, but which he displayed as a proof that there had been giants in his family. (laughs) Okay, so it's that house. It's like basically a fucking museum of like, look how cool my family was. This is, you stop by a sort of casual acquaintance house in hopes of like getting a couch to crash on and maybe a glass of wine and some dinner. And they're like, great, yeah, absolutely. Make your yourself comfortable i'm gonna go get the slide projector so mm-hmm. i can show you slides from my vacation oh man i should have stayed at the lodge house in truth he was but a small descendant from such great warriors <laughs> i mean he can't even lift the damn sword when you looked at their bluff visages and brawny limbs as depicted in their portraits, and then of the little Marquis with his spindle shanks, his shallow lantern visage. Skimble shanks? <laughs> Skimble sh- spindle shanks. <laughs> spindle shanks, the great Marquis who can't pick up his sword. <laughs> Innuendo. Intended. Poor spindle shanks. Life's hard. <laughs> but your sword isn't. <laughs> hey! <laughs> but a ching. 
With his spindle shanks, his shallow lathern visage flanked with a pair of powdered earlocks or uh, ale de pigeon that seemed ready to fly away with you, you would hardly believe him to be of the same race. <laughs> so we now have a very clear picture of this scrawny motherfucker. This is just scrawny ass fop trying to wield yeah. a big old giant two handed. Like, my family was fabulous. <laughs> As he sniffs snuff. He's like, hello. Okay, now I have a very clear vision of him. But when you looked at the eyes that sparkled out like a beetle's from each side of his hooked nose, you saw at once that he inherited all the fiery spirit of his forefathers. Oh, he's an angry fop. Oh. In fact, a Frenchman's spirit never exhales. However, his body may dwindle. You have to exhale or you'll die. It rather rarefies and grows more inflammable as the earthly particles diminish and I have seen valor enough in a little fiery-hearted French dwarf to have furnished out a tolerable giant. <laughs> so, basically, Tyrion Lannister could fill, like, the the in, the energy of Tyrion Lannister could fill the, one of the giants of the, uh, of the, the Beyond the Wall wildlings. Like, Frenchmen. Yeah. Frenchmen can Frenchmen be tiny, have enough but, have enough fire even in the the smaller ones yeah. to be tougher than a giant Englishman. Yeah. Damn. That's that's saying a lot. This 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 British guy's going to get kicked out of the country. <laughs> well, he is being written by an American. That's true. <laughs> so So, here we go. When once the marquis as he was wont Put on one of his old helmets. <laughs> I love that he's just trying on his old <laughs> shit. Like he's like, ooh, a friend. Let's Must like dress, dress up. <laughs> when once the marquis, as he was wont, put on one of the old helmets that were stuck up in the hall, though his head no more filled it than a dry pea, it's peas cod. Yet his eyes sparkled from the bottom of the iron cavern with the brilliancy of carbuncles. And when he poised the ponderous two-handed sword of his ancestors, you would have thought you saw the doughty little David wielding the sword of Goliath, which was unto him like a weaver's beam. <laughs> I can't tell if he likes this guy or doesn't. Because, like... I don't just, think... I, I feel don't like think this he's guy putting is like a twelve-year-old. I don't think he's putting value judgment on anything he's saying. He's I think just, he's just describing him as best as possible, and the the and the he's effect. So excited about everything. The effect is quite comical. However, gentlemen, I am dwelling too long on this description of the marquee. <laughs> <laughs> Funny, because I was like, I have a very clear picture of this dude. However, gentlemen, I am dwelling too long on this description of the Marquis and his chateau, but you must excuse me. He was an old friend of my uncle's, and whenever my uncle told the story, he was always fond of talking a great deal about his host. Poor little Marquis. <laughs> he was one of the handful of gallant courtiers who made such a devoted but hopeless stand in the cause of their sovereign in the Chateau of the Tuileries against the eruption of the mob on the sad 10th of August. Oh, no. Does the that Tuileries? Tuiler oh, yeah, that's probably it. 
Dear listener, this is not all details that I knew off the top of my head, but I did recognize the name Tuileries and the uh, the mob, the insurrection. So the insurrection of August 10th, 1792, according to Wikipedia, was a defining event of the French Revolution when armed revolutionaries in Paris, increasingly in conflict with the French monarchy, stormed the Tuileries Palace. The conflict led France to abolish the monarchy and establish a republic. Got it. So that's the event that he's referring to. Let them eat cake. Yeah, kind (laughs) of. Except it sounds like he's saying that his ancestors were on the side of the monarchy. Absolutely. (laughs) His uncle's friends were very much, yeah. He was one of the handful of gallant courtiers who made such a devoted but hopeless stand in the cause of their sovereign in the chateau of the... Tuileries. Tuileries. That just sounds... Not right. <laughs> Tuileries. Like, that sounds like a snack you get at the like state fair. I'd like uh, one Tuilerie and uh, some curly fries. In the Chateau of the Tuileries against the eruption of the mob on the sad 10th of August. He displayed the valor of a pre-French chevalier. Chevalier. Yep. Knight. Oh, yeah, because I've seen um, Da Vinci Code. Uh, he displayed the valor of a pre-French chevalier to the last, flourished feebly his little court sword with a sasa. <laughs> it literally sasa, S-A-S-A, exclamation point. Sasa, in the face of a whole legion of sans-coulet. Probably against them, sans-coulet, sans-coulat. Like culottes, pants, the pants. Yes, and yes. Um, (laughs) He he was attacked by a pair of pants. Sans culottes Mm -hmm. uh, was the is is the French term for lower class Parisian Republican from the French Revolution, named after the style of pants pants that they wore. Oh, oh! I just learned some fashion shit, y'all. Culottes. Our uh, French, uh, French uh, peasants. <laughs> Fabulous. So he had some serious sasa in the face of a whole legion of sans-culottes, but was pinned to the wall like a butterfly by the pike of a poissard, and his heroic soul was borne up to heaven on his ale de pigeon. Oh, <laughs> there goes the Marquis. Bye-bye, Marquis. Bye-bye. You lost to your imaginary enemies. But all of this has nothing to do with my story. (laughs) (laughs) So, to the point then. (laughs) Oh, this is that guy at the dinner party. He is absolutely that guy. When the hour arrived for retiring for the night, my uncle was shown to his room in a venerable old tower. Don't Don't go go into into the room in the tower. Don't go into the room. Tower. If you haven't listened to that episode, do because it's creepy as hell. Also, I'm just gonna add a little bit of the music under these next few. Yeah. This next little bit of writing. Cool music that's creepy and it will never leave my brain. It was the oldest part of the chateau, and had in ancient times been the donjon or stronghold. Of course, the chamber was none of the best. 
The Marquis had put him there, however, because he knew him to be a traveler of taste and fond of antiquities, and also because the better apartments were already occupied. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yes. No, it's fabulous. You'll love it. It's full of old relics and antiquities, and also it's the only room that's still available. So, come on. It'll be fabulous. I'll bring my sword. (laughs) Indeed. He perfectly reconciled my uncle to his quarters by mentioning the great personages who had once inhabited them, all of whom were in some way or another connected with the family. If you would take his word for it, Jean Ballon, or as he called him, Jean de Ballon, (laughs) had died of chagrin in this very chamber. Don't tell people that someone died in the room and then be like, it's the best. Oh, you'll love it. My uncle uncle died died there. there. (laughs) Oh my God. What did he die of? Chagrin. Isn't that like mild irritation? Yeah, it was a lot of mild irritation. He died of chagrin in this very chamber on hearing of the success of his rival, Robert the Bruce, at the Battle of Bangkok Burn. And when he added that the Duke of Guise had slept in it during the wars of the League, my uncle was fain to felicitate himself upon being honored with such distinguished quarters. The night was shrewd and windy, and the chamber none of the warmest. An old, long-faced, long-bodied servant in quaint livery, who attended upon my uncle, threw down an armful of wood beside the fireplace, gave a queer look about the room, and then wished him bon repos. Good night. Good sleep. Good sleep. With a grimace and a shrug that would have been suspicious from any other than an old French servant. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you know how the French servants are. They're just snarky. It's, you know, it's fine. They're always that way. Eh. The chamber was indeed a wild, crazy look, enough to strike anyone who had read romances with apprehension and foreboding. (laughs) The windows were high and narrow and had once been loopholes, but had been rudely enlarged, as well as the extreme thickness of the walls would permit, and the ill-fitted castaments rattled to every breeze. You would have thought, on a windy night, some of the old leaguers were tramping and clanking about the apartment in their huge boots and rattling spurs. A door which stood ajar, and like a true French door, would stand ajar. (laughs) (laughs) There's so much judgment in this, it's amazing. In spite of every reason and effort to the contrary... Opened upon a long... So it's like, I tried to shut the door. It It refuses to be shut. And you wonder why the French don't like the English. In spite of every reason and effort to the contrary, opened upon a long, dark corridor that led the Lord knows whither. (laughs) So, God knows where. (laughs) And seemed just made for ghosts to air themselves in when they turned out of their graves at midnight. Sure. I know exactly. They are in the room in the tower. Yeah. The wind would... Well, and I know my tower has a ghost hallway. I mean, we're basically in the tower of this house, I guess. It's kind of the the room over the garage, like, you know. The abandoned tower. There's a creepy attic above that you hear, like, scurrying feet, which you think are raccoons, but really, it's like the demons that live above us. It's, yeah, it's it's the ghosts from the great Iowa war of... (laughs) 
78. <laughs> yep. It was a rough year. It was a rough year in Iowa. It we was. lost a l- lot of good cows. A lot of good moose that, that year. Yeah. A lot of good cows. A lot beans. of good corn. Soybeans. It yeah. was really, really hard. My uncle... <laughs> The wind would spring up into a hoarse murmur through this passage and creak the door to and fro as if some dubious ghost were balancing in its mind whether to come in or not. In a word, it was precisely the kind of comfortless apartment that a ghost, if a ghost were in the chateau, would single out for its favorite lounge. <laughs> yeah, it's the ghost hallway. It's, it's the it's ghost, ghost room. It's ghost room. My uncle, however, though a man accustomed to meet with strange adventures, apprehended none at the time. He made several attempts to shut the door, but in vain. Not that he apprehended anything, for he was too old a traveler to be daunted by a wild-looking apartment. But the night, as I have said, was cold and gusty, something like the present, and, and the wind howled about the old turret, pretty much as it does round this old mansion at this moment. And the breeze from the long, dark corridor came in as damp and chilly as if from a dungeon. My uncle, therefore, since he could not close the door, threw a quantity of wood on the fire, which soon set up a flame in the great wide-mouthed chimney that illuminated the whole chamber and made the shadow of the tongs on the opposing wall look like a long-legged giant. My uncle now clambered on the top of the half-score of mattresses which form a French bed. (laughs) (laughs) This bougie-ass bed that I had to climb a ladder to get into. Ten fucking mattresses. Like Princess and the Pea style. (laughs) Except they don't slip a pea under the mattress, they slip a skeleton under the mattress. Yes, it's going to haunt the shit out of you. Here we go. My uncle now clambered on top of the half score of mattresses which form a French bed and which stood in a deep recess. Then, tucking himself snugly in and burying himself up to the chin in bedclothes, he lay looking at the fire and listening to the wind and chuckling to think how knowingly he had come over his friend the Marquis for a night's lodging. And so he fell asleep. He had not taken above half of his first nap when he was awakened by the clock of the chateau in the turret over the chamber, which struck midnight. It Clocks was, really shouldn't strike midnight. I, like, I, like, I'm asleep. Why are you doing that? First of all, do you know? So we're staying at my parents' house right now, as many of my, our listeners know. Um, because of the pandemic. And my dad collects clocks, like antique clocks. So imagine 10-year-old, paranoid, anxiety-ridden Heather laying in our, like, freaking 250-year-old house in England, which is where we lived, listening to about 12 different clocks strike midnight. That's why I saw ghosts. <laughs> there, whether there are ghosts or not, when you hear that many, like, clocks strike midnight in a creepy old house and you're a child or you have an imagination, what do you think is going to happen? <laughs> And we wonder why I'm anxious. He was awakened by the clock of the chateau and the turret over his chamber, which struck midnight. It was just such an old clock as ghosts are fond of. It had a deep, 
dismal tone and struck so slowly and tediously that my uncle thought it would never have done. He counted and counted till he was confident he'd counted 13. And then it stopped. The fire had burnt low and the blaze of the last log was almost expiring, burning in small blue flames, which now and then lengthened into a little white gleam. My uncle lay with his eyes half closed and his nightcap drawn almost down on his nose. His fancy was already wandering and began to mingle up the present scene with the crater of Vesuvius, the French opera, the Colosseum of Rome, Dolly's Chop House in London. <laughs> Dolly Parton had a chop house in London? Yeah, back in the 1800s. Y'all, Dolly, Parton. Dolly Parton doesn't age. I swear she's a vampire and she's the best vampire that ever was. <laughs> She's been working nine to five for like 700 years. Yeah, she kicking ass. Woman works hard. <laughs> yes, she does. Dolly's Chop House in London and all the Farag... Farago? 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 Farago. A confused mixture. Oh, fun. Ooh, that's a fun word. Farago. I'm going to read it again just because I like it. Dolly's Chop House in London and all the farrago of noted places in which the brain of a traveler is crammed. In a word, he was just not falling asleep. Suddenly, he was aroused. <laughs> Ooh, some of that farrago well, took him to another place. Well, it's been that kind of day. Suddenly, he was aroused by the sound of footsteps that appeared to be slowly pacing along the corridor. My uncle, as I have often heard him say himself, was a man not easily frightened. So he lay quiet, supposing that this might be some other guest or some servant on his way to bed. The footsteps, however, approached the door. The door gently opened. Whether of its own accord or whether pushed open, my uncle could not distinguish. A figure all in white glided in. It was a female. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And that's why he's aroused. He could, was, he could tell by the sound of the footsteps? <laughs> it was like heels. Maybe she's wearing heels. Click, of course, French people click, at the clock. time did wear, like, click, heels. Click, so. It could just be the marquee. It might be the marquee playing dress up. <laughs> hey! It he's was a very dainty. <laughs> it was a female, tall and stately in person, and of a most commanding air. Her dress was of an ancient fashion, ample in volume and sweeping the floor. She walked up to the fireplace without regarding my uncle, who raised his nightcap with one hand and stared earnestly at her. She remained for some time, standing by the fire, which flashing up at intervals cast blue and white gleams of light that enabled my uncle to remark her appearance minute minutely. Minutely, yeah. Not minutely. In, minutely, minutely, in detail. In detail. Her face was ghastly pale, and perhaps rendered still more so by the bluish light of the fire. It possessed beauty, but its beauty was saddened by care and anxiety. There was the look of one accustomed to trouble, but of one whom trouble could not cast down or subdue, for there was still a predominating air of proud, unconquerable resolution. Oh, this is a very, very complex ghost. Got a lot going on. Such, at least, was the opinion formed by my uncle, and he considered himself a great psycho... physio... 
I don't know what this word is. I can't see it. P-H-Y-S-I-O-G-N-O-M-I-S-T. Judge of character, I'm guessing, or like... Exactly. Oh! A person supposedly able to judge character or formally to predict the future from facial characteristics. Hey, what's up? (laughs) I mean, context clues, but yeah. He considered... So how do you pronounce it again? Physiognomist. Physiognomist. Such, at least, was the opinion formed by my uncle, and he considered himself a great physiognomist. Great judge of character. Yep. The figure remained, as I said, for some time by the fire, putting out first one hand and then the other, then each foot alternately, as if warming itself. Or doing the hokey pokey. (laughs) You put your left foot in, you put your left foot. It's just. I dude, didn't realize yeah. that was a song about warming yourself up by the fire. It really is. Aw. Yeah. The, and you have to shake it all about to put out the flames. Like if you actually get it in the fire, it's like ah. You put your left foot in and you fuck shake it. You shake it all about. Do the hokey pokey and turn yourself around. That's to put out all the flames that have gotten all over you. Yeah. And you learn what it's all about. about. Wee. Because you're dead. <laughs> Yay. Now you can haunt this place forever. The figure remained, as I said, for some time by the fire, putting one hand out and then the other, then each foot alternately, as if warming itself for your ghosts, if ghosts it really was, are apt to be cold. My uncle furthermore remarked that it wore high-heeled shoes after an ancient fashion with paste or diamond buckles that sparkled as though they were alive. At length, the figure turned gently round, casting a glassy look about the apartment, which, as it passed over my uncle, made his blood run cold and chilled the very marrow in his bones. It then stretched its arms towards heaven, clasped its hands, and wringing them in a supplicating manner, glided slowly out of the room. My uncle lay for some time meditating on this visitation, for, as he remarked when he told me the story, though a man of firmness, he was also a man of reflection, and did not reject a thing because it was out of the regular course of events. (laughs) However, being, as I have said before, a great traveler and accustomed to strange adventures, he drew his nightcap resolutely over his eyes, turned his back to the door, hoisted the bedclothes high over his shoulders, and gradually fell asleep. Bah, humbug. Bah, humbug. (laughs) How long he slept, he could not say, when he was awakened by the voice of someone at the bedside. He turned round and beheld the old French servant, oh, it's not a ghost, well, maybe the servant is a ghost, with his ears locked in tight buckles on each side of a long, lathern face, on which habit had deeply wrinkled an everlasting smile. He made a thousand grimaces and asked a thousand pardons for disturbing Monsieur, but the morning was considerably advanced. While my uncle was dressing, he called vaguely to mind the visitor of the preceding night. He asked the ancient domestic what lady was in the habit of rambling about this part of the chateau at night. The old valet shrugged his shoulders as high as his head, laid one hand on his bosom, threw open the other with every finger extended, made the most whimsical grimace, which he meant to be complimentary, (laughs) 
<laughs> it was not for him to know anything of La Brasse fortune of Monsieur. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh no, you're not supposed to know about that. My uncle saw there was nothing satisfactory to be learned about this quarter. <laughs> After breakfast, he was walking with the Marquis through the modern apartments of the chateau, sliding over the well-waxed floors of silken saloons amidst furniture rich in gilding and brocade, until they came to a long picture gallery containing many portraits, some in oil and some in chalks. Here was an ample field for the eloquence of his host, who had all the family pride of a nobleman and the ancient regime. There was not a grand name in Normandy, and hardly one in France that was not, in some way or another, connected to this house. My uncle stood listening with inward impatience. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's the slideshow. Come on, this uh, yeah. was my great-great-grandmother's best friend's mom. <laughs> like... My uncle stood listening with inward impatience, resting sometimes on one leg, sometimes on the other, as the little Marquis decanted with his, un with his usual fire and vivacity of the achievements of his ancestors, whose portraits hung along the wall, from the martial deeds of the stern warriors in steel to the gallantries and intrigues of the blue-eyed gentlemen with fair smiling faces, powdered earlocks, laced ruffles, and pink and blue silk coats and breeches not forgetting the conquests of the lovely shepherdesses <laughs> with hoop petticoats and waists no thicker than an hourglass who appeared ruling over their sheep and their swains with dainty crooks decorating with fluttering ribbons in the midst of his friend's discourse my uncle's eyes rested on a full length portrait which struck him as being the very counterpart of his visitor from the preceding night. I was waiting for that. Sure. I was like, you gonna see her? Naturally. You gonna see her? Because it's a ghost story. We've yeah. read enough M.R. James yeah. to know how this works. I've seen Harry Potter. <laughs> like The ghosts live in the portraits and they come out, right, sometimes. Methinks, he said, pointing to it, I have seen the original of this portrait. Pardonnez-moi! That was really good. Pardonnez-moi. Pardonnez-moi. I'm just gonna keep saying it. Great, I like it. You know, I'll I'll just I'll um I'll just record the one that I did. I'll, I'll I'm edit to get the, the one that I did because I haven't given him one yet. Oh, fair enough. Squeaky. Pardonnez-moi. <laughs> Polly want a cracker? Pardonnez-moi, replied the Marquis. I just made him so American. Pardonnez-moi. Pardonnez-moi's. Pardonnez-moi's, replied the Marquis politely. <laughs> Pardonnez-moi, replied the Marquis politely. That can hardly be, as the lady has been dead for more than a hundred years. That was the beautiful Duchess of Loganville. Lagoonville, something like that. She was the Duchess of Loganville. Of Laguna Beach. Of Laguna Beach, <laughs> yes. The new reality show coming to the WB. That was the beautiful Duchess de Loganville, who figured during the minority of Louis Fourteenth. And was there anything remarkable in her history? Never was questioned more unlucky. 
the little marquis immediately threw himself into the attitude of a man about to tell a long story. <laughs> In fact, my uncle had pulled upon himself the whole history of the Civil War of the Fronde, in which the beautiful Duchess had played so distinguished a part. Terrain, Colgeny, and Marzarin were called up from their graves to grace his narration, nor were the affairs of the Baron Coders nor the chivalry of the Parochians forgotten. My uncle began to wish himself a thousand leagues off from the Marquis and his merciless memory, when suddenly the little man's recollections took a more interesting turn. He was relating the imprisonment of the Duke de Longueville with the Princess Condé and Conti in the Chateau of Vincennes and the ineffectual efforts of the Duchess to rouse the sturdy Normans to their rescue. Well, she tried. She tried. He had come to that part where she was invested by the royal forces in the Chateau de Dimp and in intimate danger of falling into their hands. The spirit of the Duchess, proceeded the Marquis, rose with her trials. It was astonishing to see so delicate and beautiful a being buffet so resolutely with hardships. She determined on a desperate means of escape. One dark, unruly night, she issued secretly out of a small postern gate of the castle, which the enemy had neglected to guard. She was followed by her female attendants, a few domestics, and some gallant cavaliers who had remained faithful to her fortunes. Her object was to gain a small port about two leagues' distance, where she had privately provided a vessel for her escape in case of emergency. The little band of fugitives was obliged to perform the distance on foot. When they arrived at the port, the wind was high and stormy, the tide contrary, the vessel anchored far off the road, and no means of getting on board. But by a fishing scallop they lay tossing like a cockle shell on the edge of the surf. The Duchess determined to risk the attempt. The seamen... Get past it. The seamen endeavored to dissuade her, but the imminence of her danger on the shore and the magnanimity... I said it! The magnanimity of her spirit urged her on. She had to be borne to the shallop in the arms of a mariner. Such was the violence of the wind and waves that he faltered, lost his foothold, and let his precious burden fall into the sea. Uh-oh. The Duchess was nearly drowned, but partly through her own struggles, partly by the exteriors of the seamen, she got on land. As soon as she had little recovered strength, she insisted on renewing the attempt. The storm, however, had by this time become so violent as to set all efforts at defiance. To delay was to be discovered and taken prisoner. As the only resource left, she procured horses, mounted with her female attendants and crew, behind the gallant gentleman who accompanied her, and scoured the country to seek some temporary asylum. While the Duchess, continued the Marquis, laying his forefinger on my uncle's breast to arouse his flagging attention. <laughs> <laughs> While the Duchess, poor lady, was wandering amid the tempest of his of this desolate manner, she arrived 
at this chateau. Her approach caused some uneasiness, for the clattering of a troop of horse at dead of night up the avenue of a lonely chateau in those unsettled times and in a troubled part of the country was enough to occasion alarm. A tall, broad-shouldered chasseur? Chasseur? Chasseur. A soldier, soldier, usually in the light cavalry, equipped and trained for rapid movement, especially in the French army. So it's a French ninja. Very yeah. fast movement. Okay. A tall, broad-shouldered chasseur, armed to the teeth, galloped ahead and announced the name of the visitor. All uneasiness was dispelled. The household turned out with flambeau to receive her, and never did torches gleam on a more weather-beaten, travel-stained band than came tramping into the court. Such pale, careworn faces, such bedraggled dresses as the poor Duchess and her females presented, each seated behind her cavalier, while half-drenched, half-drowsy pages and attendants seemed ready to fall from their horses with sleep and fatigue. The Duchess was received with a hearty welcome by my ancestors. She was ushered into the hall of the chateau, and the fire soon crackled and blazed to cheer herself and her train, and every spit and stewpan was put in the requisition to prepare ample refreshments for the wayfarers. She had a right to our hospitalities, continued the little Marquis, drawing himself up with a slight degree of stateliness, for she was related to our family. I'll tell you how it was. Her family, Henry de Bourdon, Prince de Caen, but did the Duchess pass the night in the chateau, said my uncle rather <laughs> oh, abruptly. thank God. <laughs> My uncle said rather abruptly, terrified at the idea of getting involved in one of the Marquis' genealogical discussions. <laughs> oh, as to the Duchess, she was put in the apartment you occupied last night, which at that time was kind of a state apartment. Her followers were quartered in the chambers opening upon the neighboring corridor, and her favorite page slept in the adjoining closet. Up and down the corridor walked the great chasseur who had announced her arrival and who acted as a kind of sentinel or guard. He was a dark, stern, powerful-looking fellow, and as the light of a lamp in the corridor fell upon his deeply marked face and seigneury form, he seemed capable of defending the castle with a single arm. It was a rough, rude night about this time of year. Apropos, now that I think of it, last night was the anniversary of her visit. I may well remember the precise date, for it was a night not to be forgotten by our house. There is a singular tradition concerning it in our family. Here the Marquis hesitated, and a cloud seemed to gather about his bushy eyebrows. There is a tradition that a strange occurrence took place that night. A strange, mysterious, inexplicable occurrence. Here he checked himself and paused. Did it relate to that lady? inquired my uncle eagerly. <laughs> inquired my uncle eagerly. Igorly? Igorly? <laughs> Igor. <laughs> it was past the hour of midnight, resumed the Marquis, when the whole chateau... Here he paused again. My uncle made a movement of anxious curiosity. 
Excuse me, said the Marquis, a slight blush streaking his sullen visage. There are some circumstances connected with our family history which I do not like to relate. That was a rude period, a, a time of great crimes among great men, for you know high blood, when it runs wrong, will not run tamely like blood of the canil. Canil? It's a French word. Canal. Canal. The common people, the masses. Oh, the mobs. It was a rude period, a time of great crimes among great men, for you know high blood, when it runs wrong, will not run tamely like blood of the canil, poor lady. But I have a little family pride that, excuse me, we will change the subject if you please. My uncle's curiosity was piqued. The pompous and magnificent introduction had led him to expect something wonderful in the story to which it served as a kind of avenue. He had no idea of being cheated out of it by a sudden fit of unreasonable squeamishness. Besides, being a traveler in quest of information, considered it his duty to inquire into everything. The Marquis, however, evaded every question. Well, said my uncle, a little petulantly <laughs> whatever you may think of it i saw that lady last night the marquis stepped back and gazed at him with surprise she paid me a visit in my bedchamber <laughs> whoa <laughs> damn the marquis pulled out his snuff box with a shrug and a smile taking it no doubt for an awkward piece of English pleasantry, which politeness required him to be charmed with. <laughs> My uncle went on gravely, however, and related the whole circumstance. The Marquis heard him through his profound attention, holding his snuff-box unopened in his hand. When the story was finished, he tapped on the lid of his box deliberately, took a long, sonorous pinch of snuff. Bah! said the Marquis, and walked through the other end of the gallery. Here the narrator paused. The company waited for some time for him to resume his narrative, but he continued silent. Well, said the inquisitive gentleman, and what did your uncle say then? Nothing, replied the other. And what did the Marquis say further? Nothing. And is that all? That is all, said the narrator, filling a glass of wine. <laughs> I surmise, said the shrewd old gentleman with a waggish nose, I surmise it was the old housekeeper walking her rounds to see that all was right. <laughs> said the narrator. My uncle was way too accustomed to strange sights not to know a ghost from a housekeeper. There was a murmur round the table, half of merriment, half of disappointment. I was inclined to think the old gentleman had really an after part of his story in the reserve, but he sipped his wine and said nothing more, and there was an odd expression about the dilapidated countenance that left me in doubt whether he were in drollery or in earnest. Egad! Gad, said the knowing gentleman with the flexible nose, this story of your uncle puts me in mind of one that used to be told of an aunt of mine, 
by the mother's side, though I don't know that it will bear a comparison, as the good lady was not quite so prone to meet with strange adventures. But at any rate, you shall have it. That is the end. <laughs> <laughs> And then, and then the book moves on to the next the story, I assume. It goes to the adventure of my aunt. Awesome. So I'm guessing that guy is telling that story. That's amazing. I love that this guy just told the whole story, and they're like, and, and what then happened? What? I don't know. Just nothing. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the marquee got real high on his snuff and, like, forgot his name, and my uncle went on his merry way and knew he saw a ghost. <laughs> Thank you, Washington Irving. Thank you, or, or Mr. Cran, or, or Jeffrey Cran, or whatever multiple personality you decided or to write with. Diedrich that day. Knickerbocker. Knickerbocker, the Knicks. Or William Wizard. William Wizard is a funny one. William Wizard. That's that's one of the pseudonyms that he used when he was writing for his magazine. Oh, his for satire the, the magazine. Mad Magazine. Yeah, that that makes sense. Yeah. William Wizard presents the aristocracy. <laughs> um, I loved that. That was fun. Yeah, the only thing I ever knew of, like, he'd ever written was Sleepy Hollow, which is fantastic. I've never read Sleepy Hollow. You haven't? No. I haven't read it since I was, like, in junior high. No, I've, I've never read it. I've seen, junior like, high, high six school. different movie versions of it. Yeah, I and I've seen a ton of movie versions of it. So I definitely have read it. It's short. It's, it's in the first long. of the Jeffrey Crayon collections. Oh, Je- Jeffrey Crayon wrote it. Yes. Okay. <laughs> um, and it's one of the stories that he learned from Diedrich Knickerbocker. Damn, I would love to release Washington <laughs> Irving and all his personalities on the internet today. I can imagine the stories he would spin and the people that would be like calling into like the news stations being like, hi, I'm a William Wizard and I'm here to report. <laughs> like, um, What's the... What's the term for um, uh, it's I I feel like it's spaghetti something. Those like the 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 things that you think are oh folk tales. Yes. Um, creepy pasta. Creepy pasta. Creepy pasta. Yeah, I was like the Church of the Spaghetti Monster. Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster. No. Spaghetti Western. No. no. Creepy pasta. Creepy pasta. He, he would absolutely be he responsible would, for creating. All of them. Creepy pasta. All of them. Like the Thin Man would be his creation. There has to be a movie about this guy, like about Washington Irving. It's such an interesting, and I would love again if you know anything about him or know any like lit scholars or anything that have studied him. I would be so interested in like the like psychological study of someone who has created so many alternate personalities that he then like writes into his own stories. Like yeah. I'm very fascinated by him now, and I really enjoyed his writing yeah, style. Yeah, that was, was a good story. But uh, I mean, I can wrap I can wrap that up. I say go listen to uh, a few bad apples with Catherine. Please tell a friend if you like what you're listening to. It we really do get discovered by word of mouth and by our fabulous like other podcasts that support us and share them with their friends. So if you like this, share it. Um, we've got a Facebook page. We've got Instagram. we got Twitter. We have Patreon. You can buy us coffee. We have a website. We are listed on all these things. We're out there, y'all. We out there. Just just share a link. Tell a friend. So I think that's it. Anything else to throw in there? No. Cool. I don't. Great. 
Uh, I'm looking forward to listening back to this and seeing how many times I kicked the mic stand as I was trying to get comfortable yeah, from the back. What a trooper for getting through this. I was like, <laughs> we can wait to record tomorrow. And he's like, no, because it might be worse tomorrow. I'd rather do it <laughs> and then like have some time to edit properly yeah. because he knew I was reading and I mess up a lot more than he does. <laughs> and then there were all the French words. So again, my apologies to France. <laughs> Uh, what? Who, who's the guy that says my apologies to Matt Damon at the end of every time? He Kimmel? Always, Kimmel. Jimmy Kimmel. Uh, he always says, my apologies to Matt Damon. We didn't get to his interview. Mine is always at the end of these things. My apologies to any nationality that I attempted to speak your language or do an accent from and butchered. I apologize. My apologies to everyone. <laughs> so, with our sincerest apologies... <laughs> This has been Campfire Classics, where we try to read those books that look really good on your shelf. I'm sorry, not sorry about what I said. I'm just trying to have some fun. We need more and more musical in there. And it's six.